Blog Talk Radio. Hello, Blog Talk family. This is Leslie Gist. Um, we're uh, listening to the Gist of Freedom, and we have tonight's guest on the line, Mr. Herb Boyd. Are you on the line? I'm here. Great. Mr. Boyd, could you mm-hmm. introduce yourself to our audience? Well, you can say that um, I wear about four or five koozies. Uh One is an author. One is a journalist. One is an activist. One is the teacher. One is the grandfather. <laughs> wow, grandfather. Okay, let's let's start with the grandfather role. Um, yeah, let's start there. Um, let's go back to your childhood. Well, you know, I was born in Alabama back in 1938, and uh, I spent only about four years there and moved north with my mother, my brother, and was raised in Detroit. And uh, I've been living here in New York for the third time since 1985. Uh, Before that, I lived here about a year and a half, 1960 to 1961 and a half. And I came back again in 1978 for about six months. But this time, you know, 1985, the third time, as they say, Leslie is charmed. And I've been here all along. And ostensibly, I came here to kind of jump-start my writing career. You know, if you're, going to be the, you're going to be the writer, you got to come to New York, because that's where all the publishers and the editors and what have you are. So it's, I've been very, very fortunate, very blessed over the last uh, 25, 26 years now to uh, have a, a number of books out there and to achieve a certain amount of recognition and acclaim in the literary world, which, of course, is always my dream and always my aim. So my dream came true. Wow. Now, we can understand why your grandson will become an activist and educator, but who influenced you to become the activist and an educator? Well, I think, first of all, all of the, most of what I am is is mostly due to my mother and I guess a succession of other women in my life, including the mothers of my children, as well as my current wife. They've always been... Uh, very loyal and devoted, and have helped me as I grew and developed, you know, in any one of those enterprises out there. I couldn't have done it without them. And I, and I continue to have a team around me uh, that have helped me to kind of keep my eye on the prize and also to deal with uh, those early influences in my life and to live up to their accomplishments and achievements because, my first uh, literary idol, I guess, was uh, was James Baldwin. And even uh, when I was a teenager, I used to keep his books in my back pocket. 
Okay. Now, you mentioned being born in the 30s. For our younger listeners, could you tell us the difference as far as socially? Um, What was going on and what was more important uh, to African Americans at that time when you Mm -hmm. were a teenager, let's say? Well, okay, I came of age during the uh, Civil Rights Movement. A real consciousness occurred when uh, Dr. King and Rosa Parks and all of those gallant heroes and sheroes of the Civil Rights Movement began to rock this nation. Uh, So I was like 14 or 15, I think, when Emmett Till was killed down in in Mississippi, Um, when uh, the Montgomery Improvement Association came into existence, when Dr. King became a person of uh, of real uh, nobility, when... um, when the Black Panther Party, when Malcolm X, and in, when I was about 20, 21, and I hooked up with Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam, and then on to to the military, and out of the military, I was going to come back and go to New York. I was living in Detroit back in those days, and so my aim was to get to De- get to New York and be a part of uh, Malcolm X's new organization after he left the Nation of Islam. How did you learn about Malcolm X? That's how I learned mostly about it through uh, a very good friend and my cousin who were members of the nation. And I used to come by the house and, and they bring all their newspapers with them because they had to go out and sell these newspapers. Mm-hmm. And I'd never seen the newspaper before, so it was like Muhammad Speaks. And I just became like a very, very passionate reader of the uh, of the publication. Then I would go out with them, and then they start taking me to the mosque with them. And I would go to the mosque, and they start talking about, you know, this guy Malcolm X and everything. So I wanted to see him. So I ended up in the mosque and ended up, you know, in the nation and everything for. And that was about two or three years I was there, because then I went into the military, and then when I was in the military, Malcolm, 1963, when he um, he made that comment about. Uh, uh, President Kennedy's assassination about chickens coming home to roost, and which got him in hot water with the uh, nation and its uh, honorable Elijah Muhammad, and he ultimately led to his dismissal, or I should say, how he was pushed out of the organization, and then ultimately started his own, the organization of African American Unity, and the Muslim Mosque Incorporated. So when I heard about all those things, I had just come out of the army, and so I was in Detroit. And Malcolm came to Detroit right after his house was firebombed, which was absolutely amazing. I didn't think he would come once I heard his house had been firebombed. I just figured there wouldn't be no way in the world he was going to come to Detroit. So I went to work that day, and uh, lo and behold, he came in, and my cousin told me, I mean, you could smell the smoke on him because all he had that he salvaged from his house being destroyed was what he had on his back. Wow. Now, um, I want to get back to Malcolm, of course, but how did James Baldwin relate to Malcolm, and what about James Baldwin and what you liked about James Baldwin Um, was similar to Malcolm? I think, well, they do. They had Harlem in common, and I always dreamed about coming to Harlem. Even as a kid, when I was reading about the Harlem Renaissance and Langston Hughes and Thora Neale Hurston and all these fantastic Duke Ellington and and uh, Bessie Smith. It was just like the music and wait, wait, the, uh, you the gotta theater. back up. Today, uh-huh. children aren't reading about these these people or the Harlem Renaissance. 
Mm-hmm. What school did you go to that mm-hmm. brought the Hall of Renaissance to your classroom? The classroom was brought in, and I got it in the classroom through the various books that teachers would use in social studies. And it would always have a little bit of it. It was never much there. Was this a Maybe segregated a school? You know, Excuse me? Was this a segregated school? Oh, was no, it a no. Black school? I mean, it, it was open. But the thing about it is just given the nature of the community, uh, there may be one or two white students there, but primarily the schools I, the first schools I went to were all black. Mm-hmm. And the teachers were basically all white. And uh, if there was any whites there, they were in an absolute minority. So your white uh, teachers turned you on to the Harlem Renaissance? Oh, yeah. I had some very, very, they turned me on to just about everything in terms of the uh the history and politics and literature of this country, I got it from them. I had some very good teachers. Amazingly, uh, I can remember all of them, too, and exactly what they stressed and what I want, I, I gained from them. And uh, But I was always very curious. I, mean, I, had a, I had a deep love, a passion for books, because my mother had instilled that in me right at home. So I had good home training before I got to school, because I was reading when I was three. Because my mother had taught me everything. So when I got through the kindergarten, you know, I just <laughs> I whizzed right on through that. Next thing I know, I was in the third grade. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you had a library at home, I guess. Oh, yeah, but see what happened. There used to be traveling salesmen in this country who would go around and knock on doors mm-hmm. and sell uh, the Britannic Encyclopedia and Grohler Encyclopedia. My mother brought me a set first that she brought me, I was 10 years old, she brought a set of encyclopedias. But even beyond encyclopedias, because she worked, she was a domestic servant, so she used to clean homes in the various rich homes in Detroit. And um, she would bring home a lot of the stuff that they considered of no use and no value, particularly magazines and uh, and clothes. I mean, she brought home So she was doing some learning, as they used to say. <laughs> yeah. So she was bringing me all the stuff, and she never had more than an eighth-grade education herself. But but back then, I guess eighth-grade education, depending on where you went to school, would be equivalent to like a couple of years of college these days. Right. But anyway, she she acquired all this information, and she brought it home to me. And that's where I got really excited about magazines, because I used to read all these different Collier and Saturday Evening Post and Look and Life. And Reader's Digest. She brought all those magazines home, and but a lot of the kids in my neighborhood they had never seen those things. So right. I had a head, I had a leg up on them in so many ways in terms of being worldly. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Ebony magazine. Later on, of course, I got into the black publications too. Now uh, let's uh, change the subject just a little bit. You mentioned mm-hmm. she was a uh, domestic servant. Mm-hmm. Tell me, what is your take on a movie The Help or the book? If you even saw the movie somehow. Well, I've heard so much about both the book and the film. Of course, I've, I've not read. I didn't read the book yet, and I haven't seen the film. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's just some reason that uh, just finding the time to to get into some things that I've heard so much about, and, and, and it didn't excite me. I had nothing at all exciting about that because it sounded like, uh, you know, taking us back to the Jim Crow era and without any real you know, cloud significance. It may have been good character development, but in terms of the politics of the period, you know, I'm always curious about those films and those books. 
Uh, currently, uh, recently, of course, Michelle Alexander's book, The, the New Jim Crow, has excited me. Uh, Isabel Wilkerson's book, The Warmth of Other Sons. Uh, Douglas Blackman's Slavery by Another Name. Those are the kind of books I love to see films made of. And didn't they do Slavery by the Other Name on PBS? Wasn't that they a film? Had the, you had the documentary on the other day. I, I didn't see all of it, but I do have a copy of it now that a friend gave me just the other night at an event. And walked up and made sure because I had told him I, because I blurbed the book when Douglas when Douglas sent me the original manuscript and asked me to write a blurb for him. And if you get the hard copy version, you can see that I have the final blurb there, which I talked about how important that book was because first of all, it's coming out of Alabama. And anything to do with Alabama, since I was born there, I always have an interest in it. So I have a good collection of books on Alabama in my house. So when he sent it to me, I said, oh, wow, this is something they don't talk too much about in terms of the continuation of slavery right into the 20th century, in effect. So that that excited me, and I saw parts of the documentary already, but now I have a complete DVD copy of it, so I'll look at it later on. Great. Now, you've written a, 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 a bunch of books. Let's talk about, you know, and let's also, before we delve into um, the meat of our, sure. our conversation, let's just give everyone your contact information and where they can learn more about you and your books. Mm-hmm. So let's just, um, uh, how would someone reach you if they wanted to? Purchase well, the books. best thing to do is go is to go on. They can go. We live in this digital universe, and back in the old days, it would be a challenge. You have to go to the library or make all kind of phone calls. We would find out anything, but now you can just get to a computer. Or you got a smartphone or something, an iPad, iPod, or iPhone or i4. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you got any one of those things. You have immediate access to information. And just go ahead and go get online and just Google me, and you can and, and they can see everything. I mean, all of the books and, and some of the magazines I write for and some of the newspapers I write for and some of the radio shows I appear on, some of the television stuff, all of that stuff is, is instantaneous. You know, you can get it right away. Right. And now, I met you at a wonderful mm-hmm. event. Um, do you want to explain the event? Okay, Freedom what Sisters? is that? What are you talking about? Huh? The Freedom Sisters exhibit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's a, and it continues. In fact, I was at an event yesterday at the Left Forum at Pace University where each year they have a gathering of all the radicals and militants and people on the left, activists. And, and so I had a panel there on uh, dealing with Malcolm X. And <clears throat> it was a whole Occupy theme. The Occupy movement is all over the place. So they had the theme this year was the Occupy theme. So I had one a panel called Occupy Malcolm X. And uh, I was selling the book there, and people came by representing the Freedom Sisters and left a whole bundle, a whole package of their of their brochures. And so I just slipped them inside the book. So whoever bought the book would get a, a copy of the brochure of Freedom Sisters, which, of course, I think is a very important exhibit because particularly during this month, which, which is, uh, you know, Women's History Month. And they have, like, 20 to 25, no, it's a good number of African-American women icons. And I particularly like the uh, one there for, for Rosa Parks, where you can go in and kind of interactive aspect to it. And, of course, you've got the Betty Shabazz. It's right there in the Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz Foundation Memorial Center, Educational Center, 
which of course is the old Audubon Ballroom where Malcolm was assassinated on February 21st, 1965. So that was quite an event to see, to see Sonia Sanchez, who Sonia was a very fine poet, was supposed to be with me yesterday, but she was a little bit under the weather and exhausted, so I told her she shouldn't try to make it from, she lives in Philadelphia. I told her not to try to make it to the event, but she made it to the Freedom Sisters event, and it was so good to see her there along with, uh, I think, Merle Williams. I saw Merle for a few minutes, and Merle and I reminisced about Manning Mirabel because Manning, of course, worked with her on her book. So it was good to see her, and we chatted a bit about uh, the past, you know, with her husband, of course, was, uh, was Megger Evers. And then um, I think it was, uh, oh, some of the... Some of the Shabazz just came in later on. So it was a very interesting event, and I think it continues there. I mean, the exhibit yeah, is still April, alive there. Yes, through April, through the end of April. I, I know, 22nd, oh, yeah, I think, April 22nd. Get there. Now, let's talk about the book you were selling. Give, give the audience the title of the book. It's called By Any Means Necessary, uh, Malcolm X, Real, Not Reinvented, and a Critical Conversations on Dr. Manning Mirabel's uh, biography of Malcolm X. And what we did, I mean, the title alone suggests exactly where we're coming from, that we're somewhat concerned about uh, uh, Dr. Manning's interpretation of uh, Malcolm X's life. Not so me, not so much me, but because I'm just one of four editors, uh, Dr. Malana Karinga, Dr. Haki Madhubuti, and Dr. Ron Daniels joined me as the editors of the book. We have 35 different uh, reviews and essays and other commentary about that book that we accumulated over a nine-month period. So the book came out in nine months, which is, you know, books usually take a couple of years to get out there, but we turned this one around quite rapidly, be given the, the kind of uh, rancor and uh, debate, discussion, controversy that's going on with uh, with Manny Mirable's book. Um, Manny was a good, very good friend of mine and for many, many years, and... You know, I have just uh, an, an enduring respect for him. Um, but at the same time, you know, he would recognize and, and appreciate, I think, to a certain degree, the kind of reaction he stirred here. It's just unfortunate that he's not here to, to deal with it. And he can't uh, realize any of the, uh, of the rewards or fruits of his labor. At the same time, he's not here to defend, you know, some of the controversy that he has invoked. So... What we've done is that we brought these different reviews together, and it's a one of the things about all of this is that it continues the debate and discussion about a very important American hero, and that is Malcolm X. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I thought we lost you for a minute. Oh, right. Sure. So, um, the the you named four people. Four of you that got mm-hmm. together. Yeah, the four of us, you know, and then you talk about people who, with the Milana Karinka, you must know of his work in terms of Kwanzaa. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was one of the creators. He created, created a whole celebration of Kwanzaa. And Dr. Ron Daniels, who has been in the movement, particularly doing the whole black uh, independent political party, the political assembly back in 1972, at Gary in Gary, Indiana, he was that was his brainchild. He heads up the Institute of Black World Twenty First Century right now, and he's uh, he's been like our ambassador to Haiti, and he's taken me to Haiti with him on several occasions. And we put together a couple of documentaries on Haiti, and particularly right after the uh, earthquake 
uh, last year. Then you have, um, I should say two years ago, and then you have the uh, situation with um, with Hakim Adabuti, who's an outstanding poet and uh, essayist and author, and he's the, uh, the Third World Press, and uh, of course they're responsible for publishing the book. So it was we put our heads together on this situation. And how did this start? You, someone called someone. Did you Facebook each other? Did you tweet? How did this collaboration uh, begin? Well, it started with. Uh, kind of grows out of a contextualized in the sense that if you go back to 1968, William Styron came out with a book called uh, The Confessions of Nat Turner, and it aroused the, the black intellectual activist community, and Dr. John Henry Clark, who's my mentor, uh, he's no longer with us. He died in uh, in 1998. But he was the editor of a book that came out called Ten Black Writers Respond to Siren's Confessions of Nat Turner. And I had that in mind when I began to pull the team together. Because we had tried to do a similar thing in, uh, in 2010 uh, around uh, Skip Gates. Henry, Dr. Henry Louis Gates came out with an op-ed piece in the New York Times called Ending the Slave uh, Blame Game. and But he wanted to attribute 90% <laughs> the kind of facilitation of the slaves moving on the transatlantic slave trade, he kind of drops the blame uh, on the African chiefs. I mean, 90% of them were Oh, I didn't know he are, was the one that began that movement. Now it's clear. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it, that aroused us, and so we, some of the same people who were involved in the current project were, we did a teleconference and we called and about at some point, we had 15 of us on the line uh, doing these teleconference uh, uh, phone calls and everything. So we said we should come out with our own book and deal with him and kind of set the record straight. That's what we were going to call it. And um, so we had a couple of uh, forums, but the book never materialized because you had to have you were commissioning people to do it. And of course, these scholars and activists and academics. They're very busy, so they couldn't take any time out of their schedules to do it. So that was one of the problems we had. But here, with this reviews, it's a different thing because they're all out there, and all you need beyond just being, uh, as Richard Wright said, if you want to be an anthologist and editor, all you need is a, a pot of glue and a pair of scissors and go to work. At this, this day and age, all you need is a good computer, and you can accumulate all the stuff you want that's been published out there. So... It's about a hundred reviews of Fanny Mirable's book, so we just wanted to get a good slice of them. We could have added more, but the book would have been thicker and it just been more piling, more jumping on uh, Manning. So we say, hey, we got a good consensus, a good representative slice of those reviews out there, and we need to hurry up the process. So we took those thirty-five, and they represent a wide range of thinkers in our society. A good uh, third of them support Manning. Two-thirds of them don't. And therein lies lies the rub in terms of the title of the book. It's skewed toward support and defense of Malcolm X. Wonderful. Now, what does the family, his his children, his survivors, think of your book? Are they grateful? Uh, Yeah, I was with them yesterday. Uh, I was with Ilyasa and Malik, you know, two of the daughters, came to the conference yesterday. And uh, well, Ilyasa, she has she has the last word in our book. She wrote the uh, last essay in the book about the uh, Manning Miracles Project, 
So uh, we thought it was only fitting and proper that she she get the uh, last word. And but she was a part of that essay that she uh, presented. It's not so much a response to Manny Merrill, but but more or less, you know, uh, what she how she felt about her father's legacy, his legend, and his life. And uh, it was something she delivered at the panel that we had at a church, you know, a year before. So we asked permission to use that. And she said, well, by any means, go ahead and use it. And so when I saw her yesterday at the uh, conference, uh, she told me she had had a chance to look the book over, and she was very proud of it. Mm-hmm. But Wonderful. she's not, the sisters don't feel that good about Manning Marable's book because, I mean, it's, you can't do a book like that without having consultation with the daughters and with living relatives. And I think they were, obviously, they were turned off when they uh, heard about the proposal and what he was, his intentions. And so that that was enough. They didn't want to participate in the project whatsoever. And you said he died they, very shortly before the before. book. Before. Three days before. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. April the 1st, he, he passed, and then the book came out three days later. And um, it, it, it was, uh, like, highly promoted. I mean, reviews all over the place. Well, just like Henry Louis Gates is highly promoted. And oh, why yeah. do you think, you know... Um, you, you know, you spoke to me earlier this, uh, this morning about mm-hmm. this. But why do you think these people who have such great, you know, credibility and did such great work would all of a sudden do something so far removed from their other work? Well, I think, you know, you have to understand exactly, and, and it's hard to do, do a psychoanalytical thing on this because there'll be practicing, you know, you know psychiatry or stuff psychology without a license but right. you know, try to get into his head and where he was coming from but I guess he felt that he was have, providing a service for us and there's a large number of people who agree with that that he has provided a very valuable service in terms of looking at Malcolm's life you know despite the failures in there and some of our people in the uh, contributors to the book you know they point out the fact that it's some very valuable things in there I mean we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a certain amount of uh, very, very in- interesting and new information that he's uh, pulled together. Uh, but at the same time, you have some stuff and very disturbing uh, material in there. And, of course, when you have that kind of stuff, people go straight to it. Right. When you start talking about Malcolm being, you know, the homosexuality, the infidelities, and I think those are the but things But there's that a pattern to- um, starting to emerge, not just with Malcolm, but with even Martin Luther King. Um, yeah, you mentioned the play earlier human, this morning. Exactly. The whole humanizing thing that some of them begin to rationalize, you know, these new perspectives. We, we want to take another look at these individuals and warts and all. And at the same time, it's an opportunity for them to commercialize and commodify, you know, the kind of an icon. They kind of de-iconize these individuals and kind of bring them down a notch and to humanize them. Well, we accept that that it's not St. Martin, it's not St. Malcolm. We never wanted to to deify these individuals. We didn't see them as gods. Mm -hmm. We saw them as human beings who made the ultimate commitment in terms of the struggle and liberation of their people. Nothing more than that. We realized that they got up in the morning and they pulled the pants on and they brushed their teeth and combed their hair just like everyone else. But at the same time, they went out there on the ramparts. They made the ultimate sacrifice. They were absolutely committed and devoted to the struggle of their people. 
And so that set them apart from the kind of ordinary uh, quotient kind of thing that you recognize in our communities. So, I mean, for that alone, they deserve all the heavy adoration and idolization we can give them. And do you think that it's, um, that his purpose, which was to, you know, to defile his memory, you think it's going to backfire and now more people will embrace books like your book and uh, movies I, I, which mm-hmm. uh, show the true Malcolm, not the reinvented Malcolm? Mm-hmm. I think one of the things about all of this here, and I think Amiri Barak has said it very well, is that it kind of renews and, and revives the whole discussion around this very magnificent, important individual as we struggle for the truth and clarity, mm-hmm. because it's still, we're still not there. There's still so much more to be done, still so much more work we have to do. It's so much more to to kind of dig into the research and the materials that exist out there. So all we've done is, is added another step on the ladder. But we still got a long way to climb before we get to a full understanding and how the majesty of Dr. King and, and Malcolm's life and a number of our other heroes and heroes out of the uh, human and civil rights struggle. We still got so much to do on that. Certainly in terms of uh, films. I mean, I look at some of the films coming out. I mean, where's the film on Marcus Garvey? Where's the film on Paul Robeson? Where's the film on Toussaint Louverture? Where's the film on Nat Turner and Gabriel Prosser and Denmark Vesey? Where's the film on Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Dorian Hurston? We need those kind of films out there other than you looking at something like The Help necessarily. But what do you think at- about everyone, and when I say everyone, I'm speaking primarily about African-Americans, um, supporting the Red Tail film because it was mm-hmm. uh, produced by a non-African American and he yes. struggled. You know, you know. What do you feel about that type of relationship and support versus what you just said? Mm-hmm. Well, I think first of all, you know, we have the ultimate responsibility and obligation to to create our own cultural artifacts. And I produce our own films and plays and write our own, publish our own books. You know, and when other folks do do it and we, we look at that situation, then you're going to, you know, kind of uh, put that down or dismiss it and what have you. But it's some, sometimes you say the genie is out of the bottle. It's too late. It's already out there. And a lot of people go in and support that particular endeavor. And, 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 and so when you have a Red Tails out there, which begins to look at some very neglected parts of our history and culture, and we have some heroes there. But it's not a complete, it's not a perfect uh, docu- uh, film. There's a number of flaws, a number of things that could have been done better. The same thing we can say about Spike Lee's film uh, on Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it needs, uh, it's not the last word. It's all it is, it adds to the discussion. Now, what would you think Malcolm would have said about Spike, who was originally an independent filmmaker, Mm -hmm. uh, soliciting help or money and support from Warner Brothers? I think he would say that that's the the name of the game. That's the nature of the business. Uh, You try to get your product through with as much integrity as you can, realizing that, you know, there's all kind of mischief and demons out there who can sidetrack and, and destroy and diminish what you're trying to do. But nonetheless, you, you kind of push ahead because, you know, where are you going to get the money from? If you I mean, Bill Cosby and, and Oprah Win- and Winfrey and uh, the other mega buccaneers out there, they have to kind of own up to it. 
we have enough money in the community among our so-called uh, the plutocrats we have, the mega buccaneers, the millionaires, the billionaires, we have in our own community, if they put their resources together, they could produce, you know, something that, uh, that would be equivalent to a major film out there. I mean, we've done that before. Name some of the um, filmmakers of the past. In the past, we could start talking about just independent filmmakers like Oscar Michaud. Right. You know, what he was doing alone. What about Madam C.J. Walker's theater? Madam C.J. Walker. You talk about the people who we've had right here in Harlem, for example. We talk about Philip Payton and and Bigfoot Mary, (laughs) uh, who acquired all kind of property and and real estate and, 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 and wealth as a result of investing in their own community, investing in their own people. So at the same time, you know, we have so many outstanding writers and filmmakers, and we have so many outstanding artists and sculptors and painters who have just gone without any kind of recognition whatsoever. So we have a responsibility to kind of support and expand and explore, you know, our own community and our own culture. We haven't done that. Now, I was always told that, you know, Integration killed all of our independence in our self-sustaining communities. Mm-hmm. And when you look at Madam C.J. Walker's movie theater, it was beautiful. It was state of the art. So, you know, what do you have to say when you hear hear people argue that you know we ran to um, the white theaters because ours was run down or it was a chitlin circuit? You know, well, and then when you look at pictures of Madam C.J. Walker's theater and other places that were beautiful, you know, what is the real reason why these institutions went by the wayside? Well, you, you, I think you said it right from the beginning in terms of what happened with the whole integration. Mm-hmm. When we were forced into kind of the restricted covenants and not allowed to participate, you know, in the society at large, the kind of uh, widespread discrimination, you know, it forced us to fall back on our own. We created our own in every instance, mm-hmm. in terms of the church, the schools, in terms of the businesses. Do you really think it was a force, or do you think it was just a natural, innate quality that every race has, that you, you're you going to have your own church, you're going to have your own school, or do you think even if Jim Crow wasn't wasn't in place that we would have just gravitated towards a white school? And we would not well, have created our own. Is, no, no. It's very clear right now what's going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm watching the March Madness, right? Right. I'm watching the whole basketball thing go down. Mm-hmm. What historically black college is even contending? Mm-hmm. Not one. Mm-hmm. Who are the major players on all these here major squads? Black players. <laughs> so right. what happens is people are going to go where they can get the best they can. Believe me, mm-hmm. it's only natural. Mm-hmm. You're going to go where you can get the best education. You're going to go where you can drive the biggest car and live in the biggest house. You mm-hmm. want the best you can get out of life. And, mm-hmm. of course, it's always on the hill. It wasn't in the valley. It was on the hill. So okay. And, and, and the same thing with the, the, uh, the flight of the African-Americans leaving the South, going to the city. Yeah. That great that's migration. Another, that's another indicator right there. But that was a push and pull thing. Mm-hmm. It was the pull of the possibilities in the North and the push of the the kind of dangers you face in the South. 
<laughs> because first of all, you know, you had the Ku Klux Klan, you had this out-and-out discriminatory system down there, you had the plantation experience, you had the farmland of old weevils that had turned everything around. It was just the possibilities were so limited there. Mm-hmm. I mean, my mother is a, is a good example of that. Cause she was born and raised in the South, but she was determined that, that her kids were not going to be raised there, mm-hmm. not under Jim Crow. And so that's when she took flight and went to the uh, went and went north, and like so many people in our family did at that time, you know, looking for a better life. Because when Henry Ford was saying, "You can get five dollars a day at, at working his factory," and we weren't getting five dollars on a whole month, hoeing in a field, there was no real option there. <laughs> I mean, ooh, what percentage to... of the people that took flight to the north do you think took flight because of the boll weevil? I mean, it's, it's like I said, like I said, it was a push and pull thing. Mm-hmm. It was some of the, the the kind of social conditions in the South were not at all. Uh, as, it was not kind of best situation. It was they weren't comfortable in that situation. Okay, all right. And, uh, mm-hmm. I got it. Um, I'm going to mm-hmm. ask you a question about. Sure. Talked about the bull evil. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, I lost my train of thought. Mm-hmm. I apologize. Um, Mm-hmm. Oh, I know it's going to tell you. George Washington Carver, I just read this. Mm-hmm. Um, he was trying, doing a bull weevil epidemic, he had come up with the peanut, of course. Sure. And he started teaching people how to cultivate their land and, you know, this bio, bio um, sustainability that they're teaching us now. He was teaching exactly. it back then. And I just read within the last two weeks that the... China started importing the peanuts to undermine his movement. Mm-hmm. So when I read that, it was I was always suspicious of the bull weevil, and I always felt that um, the bull weevil was the real cause of the the migration. I think African Americans would have stayed on their land, many of them owned the land, if they could have sustained it and lived off of the land. And I I think it was a conspiracy to get us off of that valuable land. Now, you know, everyone's running back down to the south. But mm-hmm. we have no more air property because the land was intentionally devalued. What do you have to say about that? Well, I think you, you, you enter a very, very complicated situation that you have to put it in historical perspective mm-hmm. in terms of how people in the south related to the land. Because even today you recognize there's a, there's a flight of people going back south. Right. They're going back home and because of the economic situation, because of the land question, because of the retirement, because of the situation. High taxes here. here. Yeah, so they're going back. Uh, but at the same time, you know, one of the reasons is that uh, a lot of the families sold their land. I mean, I mean, I was in North, uh, South Carolina doing a research project project back in 1973 with the Gullah people who lived in and around the uh, islands, the, what you call it, the sea, the sea islands there in uh, Wadmalaw, St. James, uh, uh, St. John, right. uh, Buford, and St. Helena, all through there. And, and watch how these major corporations and companies came in and cut down the trees and drained the swamps and created golf courses. Eminent domain, right? Mm -hmm. Were they able to use eminent domain down there? 
Well, what they could do is that it was just land that was land. land this was laying fallow, mm-hmm. and no one owned necessarily owned the land. I mean, it was like swamp land. Who nobody wanted no swamp land, mm-hmm. and they just went in because they had the wherewithal to go in and drain the swamp. And next thing you know, uh, they could put together a whole community there. What we had, we had small communities in certain one of these islands down there, and they had a mutual kind of survival scheme uh, that was typically African. Right. But after a while, they started to lose that property, and then each generation, the whole telecommunication situation, they were no longer isolated. See, so long as you were isolated, you could retain certain kind of Africanisms. Mm-hmm. But once that broke down, the whole penetration of the outside culture began to minimize their survival or wanting to stay there anymore. The next generation didn't want to be tied to no swampland. They were ready to go. I mean, now I'm going to New York. I'm going to Philadelphia. I'm getting out of here. So when they left and the older people died off, the younger people up up north didn't want to come back down, so the land either just disappeared from their from their families, or they sold it off to companies. But you make I'm me think of the song, the Nina Simone happen. song, Baltimore. When when you said that, mm-hmm. I watched it happen mm-hmm. in South Carolina, where families showed me deeds that went in their family go all the way back to the to the plantation period when they owned that property. That property belonged in the family. And suddenly, you know, one young lady I knew, she moved to New York City, and she said she had no no plans to go back down south. So she had enough of the south, and she was trying to get away from all them hillbillies and crackers and rednecks. <laughs> she was ready to go. And she sold it, and she got that money and invested it in a brownstone here in Harlem. Hmm. So wow. that's what happened with a lot of from one generation to another. Uh, one generation has to deal with it. Next generation feel they don't have to deal with it, and so they get up. But now you have a return because it's another generation, and they've been a, they've stick of the north now. They want to go back to the south, but it's not a huge, but it's, it's substantial. Mm-hmm. It's a substantial return to the south that's going on all across the north among African American uh, families. And and why again? One more time. Why are they moving back? One of the reasons that they 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 have run into a situation where the uh, whole cost of living uh, is much cheaper in the south than it is in the north. That they can have their own property. For example, I come out of Detroit. If I wanted to go back to Detroit, I could go back to Detroit and buy up a whole block for what I pay in a month of rent here in New York. Wow. (laughs) It shows you how the economic situation in some of these cities is so desperate that, you know, you have a vacant, the city is vacated, you know, I mean, the city's bankrupt. Do you think um, African Americans are taking um, lax flight? Do you oh, think yeah. uh, the encroachment of other um, ethnic groups? Look at Harlem, for example. We've lost 100,000 African Americans over the last decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where they went, I'm not sure, but they're not here. Do you Some think that the African Americans didn't feel like it was it was no longer uh, a community if well, you one, had one the encroachment of, you know, of other races? Well, the displacement has also got to be configured into this. Mm-hmm. Without about it, the gentrification has, is occurring, mm-hmm. uh, where they're being priced out. They can no longer survive here because of the 
uh, the condominiums that are going up, and it prices them right out. Is that a new form of the bull weevil? Oh, yeah, that's what happens. I mean, but we have to, how do you deal with that? Well, we also, at the same time, you have a large number of fairly affluent African Americans who are coming in. So because they recognize that a lot of the young white couples who are coming into this community, that is, uh, it's a pretty stable community. The property, the stock is in pretty good shape. Uh, maybe it's still a seller's, it's still a kind of a seller's community here. Not a buyer's, mostly sellers, but it's, it's changing so rapidly mm-hmm. that we're trying to kind of do the same thing in terms of how we move out of where we are and get into one of those condominiums where it's a lot easier to live there, particularly when you get to be uh, uh, elderly uh, senior citizens. You know, you need all the accommodations you can get. Right. Mm-hmm. So what is uh, your your expectation? What do you plan on doing? Do you plan on going back know. to, you know? No, no, no I, ain't, I ain't going south. <laughs> <laughs> you said you had enough of that. If I do, it's going to be to the Caribbean. <laughs> all the way to the Caribbean or go down to South America. So, no, I have no intentions of leaving Harlem anytime soon. I'll probably be, this is my home now. I'm just fine. I'll move around in Harlem, but I would not leave out of Harlem. I'll be right here for the for the duration now. You know, I imagine I got another, eh, maybe I could have, if I can get another 15, 20 years in, I'd feel absolutely lucky, and I'd be the same age as my mother and my father. Wonderful. Well, I enjoy talking to you immensely. Oh, it's always good, Leslie. Let's do it. Let's do part two soon here. We have to because we didn't <laughs> touch on nothing. Oh, yeah. We <laughs> We've talked about a lot, and I think um, people, when they listen to this interview, they're going to learn a lot about African Americans in general. But I thank well, you. Um, we're going to have you on again. And thank um, you. have a good night. Okay. Thank you, Leslie. All righty. Bye bye. Thank you for using Blog Talk Radio. Goodbye.